Today on the Clinical Consult, we discuss practice drift in primary care behavioral health settings, specifically clarifying differences between psychotherapy and behavioral health consultation. I'm Daniel Elkert, and joining me is Dr. Kent Corso, a consulting and clinical health psychologist in Virginia, who is the lead author of the book, Integrating Behavioral Health into the Medical Home. As a prior officer in the Air Force, Dr. Corso has overseen integrated behavioral health programs at respected hospitals like Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Dr. Corso has more than a decade of experience developing high-functioning partnerships between stakeholders working in integrated behavioral health networks. It's wonderful to have you on the program, Dr. Corso. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thanks, Daniel. Kent, diving right in, in your book, Integrating Behavioral Health into the Medical Home, you use the terms primary care, behavioral health, and practice drift. How would you define each of these areas? Primary care behavioral health is a model that has been around for about 30 years, and it is essentially the way that clinicians can implement a primary level of behavioral health care. Now, that sounds funny because I've just used the same words to define the term you asked me to define, but imagine if we think of cardiology or endocrinology as a specialty, there is quite a depth of intensive assessment and intervention tools that the physicians can use to help patients. Whereas with mental health, we have historically only had one level of assessment and intervention, and it's a specialty level. By contrast, every primary care provider can do a primary level of cardiology assessment and intervention, a primary level of endocrinology, dermatology, orthopedic, you name the specialty, they can do a primary level of assessment and intervention, but there has never really been a primary level of behavioral health intervention. So this is honestly a level of care that should have been in our medical system for the last century, but just has not been. So within the past 30 years is, is when this originally started to transition into broader medical care. I'm, I'm curious, could you talk a little bit more about what you're meaning by the phrase practice drift? So there are studies that show the longer clinicians are out of graduate school, the more they drift from what they learned in graduate school in terms of the best ways to, for example, do an assessment, a standard psychological assessment, or to do a very particular psychotherapy intervention, even the activity of case conceptualizing, which is often the foundation of graduate training, as providers become further and further from their graduate training, they do less and less case conceptualizing. And, and what's important about that is that's irrespective of theoretical orientation. Hmm. That whether you're psychodynamic, cognitive, behavioral, humanistic, experiential, it doesn't matter. It's a trend that is common across all orientations. So, what that means is if we're drifting away from sort of what we should be doing, the question becomes what are we doing instead and to what extent are we compromising the effectiveness of our efforts, whether those efforts are assessment or intervention. Okay, so in these primary care behavioral health settings, it sounds like you're advocating what we'll call a behavioral health consultation. In, in what ways does this differ from like a traditional individual psychotherapy environment? That's a great question. I hope you have about 30 minutes just for this <laughs> because it's something that is pretty uh, broadly 
misunderstood, or I should say widely misunderstood, primary care behavioral health in its essence is modeled after the primary care model. So it's brief assessment, brief intervention, but it is not psychotherapy. If you consider that a primary care provider has the duty and responsibility to help patients self-manage their chronic and acute conditions, that's what the role of a behavioral health consultant is. It's helping patients strengthen certain skills. It involves psychoeducation. It is often described as a consultation model. And at the end of the day, it is the way that psychologists can function as a primary care provider in the sense that they're helping patients self-manage their symptoms. One example, if you were exercising this morning, Daniel, and you uh, sprained your ankle and went to your primary care provider, she might tell you rice. After she assessed you and, and was certain it wasn't a break, she might tell you rice, rest, ice, compression, elevation. She might also tell you to go take some Motrin uh, daily. Those are all self-management interventions that you do to reduce your symptoms and improve your functioning. And that's exactly how uh, PCBH or behavioral health consultation uh, intends to function as well. Psychotherapy, by contrast, is a much more intensive service. There's obviously quite a bit of literature about the uh, relevance of the relationship and the process, depending on what kind of psychotherapy you're practicing. But in essence, that's something the psychotherapist does to and with the patient. It's not necessarily as heavy on the psychoeducation. And frankly, it's not always as empowering. I think we can all think of a colleague or an experience we've had where it's difficult to help patients terminate therapy services. It's or where we can acknowledge in ourselves or recognize in other clinicians that a dependency has been formed between the psychotherapist and the patient. And there's a bit of a, a problem with that. It's not that we shouldn't support our patients, but we almost assume that the more support and the more dependency, the better. And I think that that's an assumption that's never been empirically tested and probably should be tested. By contrast, behavioral health consultation empowers patients to help themselves. So homework is a good example. In psychotherapy, we use homework to reinforce what was learned in the session. Whereas in behavioral health consultation, we may teach a skill, but what the person practices outside of that appointment is not homework, that's the actual work. And so, for example, in behavioral health consultation, we don't typically use the word homework because it's really the change that happens outside the room that's so valuable and so longstanding. I heard you use a word in there that I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with, psychoeducation. And I'm wondering, what role does that play in a, in a behavioral health consultation? Or how might we tease those two concepts apart a little bit? Well, I think one is a component of the other. One okay. of the most important tools a behavioral health consultant can use is education. Of course, in the medical model, we hear this called counseling. In the age of integrated care, it's very confusing when nurses, physicians, PAs, and NPs tell the patient they need counseling because what they mean by counseling is typically education. Okay. You look at some of the uh, reimbursement codes for, let's say, uh, counseling a patient about uh, safe sex practices, counseling a patient about how to do a self-breast exam or uh, changing their wound dressing. That, they're using counseling to mean education. Yet in the mental health field, the psychology field, counseling means something quite different. So 
when we say psychoeducation, there's no difference between saying psychoeducation or education. And certainly when we're talking to the primary care stakeholders, it's what they have historically called counseling. Okay, so we've got this term behavioral health consultation. I want to spell out pretty specifically from your vantage point what some of the key advantages of employing a behavioral health consultation intervention uh, style would be in regards to like patient outcomes or financial benefits? What would you say are those big advantages there? In order to talk about the advantages, we almost have to highlight what the disadvantages are of not having it. So okay. for example, imagine if you're having a heart palpitation or you have a little heart flutter or some sort of a very brief pain in your chest. Imagine if for the last 50 years, primary care providers did not do anything to address the cardiac system in the primary care setting. So if you set an appointment with your primary care provider and went into the exam room and the doctor asked, okay, what's bothering you, Daniel? He said, well, I'm having these heart palpitations or I'm having this just mild chest pain. Imagine if the primary care provider said, oh, okay, well, let me go refer you to cardiology. And that was where the, the appointment ended. The better part of the last 50 years, that's how many primary care providers dealt with mental health problems. So nothing was done at the primary level, which means there's less early intervention, less early identification, less prevention. It also means people who are, let's say, prodromal or subthreshold for something like depression or anxiety, they didn't get help until they were uh, sort of uh, had the full-blown diagnosis. So what that means is oftentimes when we look in media or the newspapers, we can get this perception that, that the, the general mental health of our country is just getting worse and worse. And that's not necessarily the case. It's a matter of where we've allocated our resources to target mental health and behavioral health problems. So what's so beneficial about the behavioral health consultation model is unlike specialty mental health, where I might see five to eight patients a day for one hour appointments, in primary care behavioral health, the behavioral health consultant can see up to 15 patients a day in 15 to 30 minute appointments. Now, remember, they're not accomplishing the same thing we do in specialty mental health settings because it's not as intensive of a treatment. It's educating patients about their symptoms and their condition and helping them set some highly specific goals to self-manage their symptoms and improve their function. And critically, Daniel, it's not just because I, the behavioral health consultant, think it's a good idea. We've got to speak to patients within the lens of their values and what's important to them. So everything around Prochaska and DiClemente stages of change and Rolnick and Miller's motivational interviewing, all of that is so important with behavioral health consultation, mm -hmm. as is many of the concepts from ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. So what I always say when I'm training people is I'd rather touch uh, 60 patients a day for five minutes than five patients a day for 60 minutes. Because if I can touch 60 patients a day, and when I say touch, what I mean is dose with just one piece of education about their health to improve their health literacy or to improve their adherence to whatever regimen their PCP has prescribed. If I can do that, I can gradually help the whole population of the clinic I work in I can help them take a step forward in their health and gradually raise the whole health of the population. I do want to jump in and, and, and raise one question. I know some of our listeners heard that phrase medical model, and it's my understanding that there are some psychologists who have expressed in the past doubts uh, about the medical model, specifically with that 
kind of approach is applied broadly that it could compromise how psychologists have historically and traditionally applied treatment interventions with their patients. So I guess I, w- I wanted to speak to that concern and, and hear if you could briefly comment on kind of what your reaction is to that and where we can go with that concern. So I think it's a valid concern, especially when the psychologists were very aware of what can go awry when things are misapplied or when uh, we're not doing uh, a treatment as it was intended to be done. So from that perspective, it's, it's important that we are aware of contexts that make it more difficult for us to impart the treatments that we know work. Having said that, the times when I've seen the, the medical model, quote unquote, be detrimental are times where the model itself is not being run well or effectively or in a way that's patient-centered. For example, if a practice is more heavily influenced by the business side of the house so that the bottom line matters more than clinical quality, then of course in that medical setting we've got some problems. Having said that, those problems don't stop at the behavioral health care that's delivered. They apply to the medical care that's delivered as well. So I think my response is that if you have a, a medical model that's run in a healthy way, and according to contemporary models, which would include the patient-centered medical home, with all the process measures, accountability checks, and, and quality indicators that go along with running a PCMH, if it's operating that way, it, it is a match made in heaven for a behavioral health consultation. Even though these two models did not arise together, they have converged over the last 10 years and, and really complement one another. So I heard you say earlier, you know, if there would be a scenario where you met with a higher number of patients, say, you know, 40 or 50 or, or, or 60 patients, that that would be, you know, a positive kind of outcome or, or treatment process. I'm curious, what might a suicide risk assessment look like in that context? If a patient does come in to a primary care behavioral health clinic, describe some suicidal thoughts, which, you know, for instance, like they're typically passive, they lack intent or a plan to end their life. Well, in that kind of a scenario, like what, what would a risk assessment in a behavioral health consultation look like if a psychologist is given a, a briefer period of time to engage with that, that patient? That's a good question, Daniel. Uh, let's paint a broader context. There's some old data that are still current, but it's from an older publication. 45% of people who die by suicide saw their primary care provider within the 30 days before they killed themselves. Primary care is the front door to all medical care. So it's a window of opportunity to help identify people early before they end their lives. One side note is that the top five diagnoses among those 45% of people who died by suicide within 30 days of seeing their PCP, the top five uh, reasons for referral or chief complaints, excuse me, not diagnoses, were anxiety and depression. And then the other three had nothing to do with mental health necessarily. It's hypertension, nonspecific GI symptoms, and nonspecific cardiac symptoms. Okay. So thank goodness we're able to have a resource in primary care for those patients who either are forthcoming and say, well, I'm here for some chest pain. And oh, by the way, I'm also thinking of, of ending my life. Thank goodness we're there to be able to assist. Now to answer your question about how we assist, it comes down to role. 
there are a lot of psychologists, and obviously social workers can also do this kind of work, but there are a lot of psychologists who either get confused, feel insulted, feel slighted by the idea of being embedded in a primary care setting, assisting physicians. And I never understood that as a slight. I, I, I can't really relate to it. I, I certainly understand how it feels to be in private practice and have your own caseload and to manage your own small business. That, I understand that fully. Uh, in the primary care setting, we are so valuable and, and viewed by the staff as experts in all things mental health and behavioral health. So when that suicidal patient does walk in, we are a cherished resource to be able to assess that patient. And that's essentially our role, is to assess the risk and determine disposition. Our role in these settings is not to conduct uh, clinical care or treatment because frankly, it needs a higher level of care. I, I can't think of another diagnosis that is probably more in need of the most intensive psychotherapy and mental health services we can offer aside from suicidal symptoms. I'm thinking back to your comments earlier about practice drift and how many psychologists are trained in a very particular way to provide care. And that I think, you know, understandably, there could be some sort of transitional growing pains for a lot of folks who are moving into this kind, kind of um, a behavioral health consultation environment. So I think your, your comments there are, are um, especially insightful I do want to spend a few minutes talking about some resources that our listeners could turn to for more information about our topic today of practice drift and helping to clarify distinctions between that traditional psychotherapy environment and behavioral health consultation. When you think about resources, what would you recommend? There are a few resources. If we're talking about practice drift, I think one of the most helpful resources, there's an instrument published a few years ago called the PPAQ. It's the Primary Care Behavioral Health Provider Adherence Questionnaire, and uh, it's published by Greg Beeler, and I think Jen Funderburg is also one of the authors. Uh, they're out of the VA, and uh, the VA has had an integrated behavioral health program for years, and so they, in certain pockets of the VA, it's very well advanced with research. So it's a 48-item self-report of how your fidelity is to the primary care behavioral health model. So getting a hold of that, I do believe it's free, uh, getting a hold of that and administering it to yourself if you are the behavioral health consultant, or if you're in the medical practice, uh, maybe you're an administrator or a physician, that would be a good thing to pass along to your behavioral health consultant. And that was the PPAQ? Is that the acronym on that? Correct. PPAQ, okay. Papa Papa Alpha Quebec. Okay. And then two other resources. Behavioral health consultation was conceived by Kirk Strassel and Patty Robinson years ago, and they just had a recent, Patty just recently published uh, the second edition of their book with Jeff Ryder, and that's Behavioral Health, uh, excuse me, Behavioral Consultation in Primary Care. It's a book by Springer. That's helpful for just understanding how to practice primary care behavioral health. And then uh, CFHA, the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association, is probably the only professional organization I know of that really focuses around integrated care and, and has a huge contingency of primary care behavioral health providers. There's even a SIG as a part of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association and a journal, Family Systems and Health, which is an APA journal. Great. And so there's really no one-stop shop for model fidelity and practice drift. To be honest, it requires that providers do the responsible ethical thing 
of policing themselves. And maybe policing isn't the right word. A better word is self-monitoring. Our whole purpose of doing continuing education units is to stay on top of what the literature says and how we can be the best at our practice. And so certainly a, a fair level of self-inspection and self-monitoring and self-improvement will go a long way. Great. Well, I think these sound like phenomenal resources. And I do want to thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Kent Corso, today for an insightful discussion. This has been the Clinical Consult brought to you by the National Register of Health Service Psychologists.